This podcast is brought to you by Intel V Pro. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I am Rachel Tashian, a fashion writer at The Post. Thank you all so much for joining us. My guest today is fashion designer and creative director, Gabriella Hurst. Gabriella, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I like, I like to I'm see really... a Christmas tree. It was a, it was oh, a yeah. surprise in the background. Yeah, yeah, a little holiday cheer. Um, so let's get right into it. I mean, you just came back from Dubai. You were at COP28. Can you um, start by telling us a little bit about what you were doing there? It, it was a it was a hard trip. I went there for twenty four hours, um, and uh, nothing will call me to put my body and ship myself through that um, that trip. In but to to speak about fusion, it was the launch of the first international fusion strategy, and by Secretary Kerry was announcing it, and we had a panel that I was part of. Um, moderated by um, the Honorable Ernest Muniz. So it was a really part of the calling that I have into, I want to see fusion happen uh, and see it uh, commercialized with my own eyes because I know the reality that we cannot continue moving this world on fossil, fossil fuels, 85% of the energy we use if you look around, everything that it's made, it's built by some energy, right? And where's this energy come? And most of it is fossil fuels. And I believe that uh, fusion has this incredible role to play in, in, in abundant energy, and it has the scale to, to take on fossil fuels. And this is why um, I'm, uh, I'm dedicating whatever moment, a second of my life I have to do it, to promote it, to make people understand that there's good news that are about to happen and that we should really take care of one another and our planet, because good news are usually don't sell that many eyeballs. Technical discussion. Hi, I'm back. We really apologize for um, the technical difficulties that we were having. We lost. Let's let's start again. Um, you've just come back from COP28 in Dubai. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you were doing there. I went to speak about fusion. It was the first launch of the first international strategy for fusion with um, Secretary Kerry and the panel was uh, conducted by the Honorable Ernest Muniz and uh, it was really to start to make people awareness, uh, to make people awareness, aware of the, uh, of the capacity that fusion has um, to move us away from our dependency of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And I know this has been, you know, a big passion of yours. I know in the panel you referred to yourself as a cheerleader for nuclear fusion. And of course, I was at your Chloe show a few years ago, um, which was sort of focused around this idea of nuclear fusion. But before we get into that, you know, what exactly is it and what how did you build this enthusiasm for for nuclear fusion? It's really um... I was reading an article in October twenty uh, first of twenty twenty one, and it was really like a lightning bolt just hit me, and I said, "This is it, this is it." And when I saw, because it's always been, it started 
since the second, since the Cold War, the the uh, fission, which is what we know as the term of nuclear, that just for a disclaimer, I have nothing against. I think it could be a a really good option for for clean energy, but it has really bad PR. And then I realized the potential of fusion, while not yet at the state of commercialization, there is so much investment and more can come from the private sector that I really saw, oh, here's the scale. So I started to research private companies and uh, the, pu the public sector as well uh, for my, that show that you want in Chloe, which is part of, uh, it was part of my last four shows at Chloe, which were each a chapter about how I s envision climate success happening. And one of the things that we really need is to move away, as I was saying prior, uh, out of that dependency that it takes 85% uh, of fossil fuels to move the modern world as we know it. And just to be mm -hmm. clear, uh, fusion is what, why the reason we are, or how we are all created. It's, it's the energy from the sun. So the fusion uh, devices that are being made are practically stars being made in this planet, which I find blowing my mind, right? And mm -hmm. I thank God for these physicists and smart brains that are, and this is why I'm such an enthusiasm, because every time I speak to them, I really see hope and I see a future for us and for our children and grandchildren from that from that perspective. And uh, even the people that want to get out of here in a rocket, they're going to need, they're going to need fusion in the rockets to get to far places. So uh, but I really see the potential of it, and uh, which is many from the lack of use of uranium for um, the ability of getting deuterium and tritarium, which are the two isotopes that you need for, for fusion. And also you can power just with a glass of water uh, like this. You, if you think about it, uh, fusion fuel, you can power a house for 800 years just with, with this. So it's abundant energy. And we know that what we have is a scale issue. And so when I always say when in my sustainability journey where I've landed is that sustainability is an energy issue. And this is where we are at. Mm -hmm. I love the way you're thinking about that. I mean, it's science as a kind of poetry in a way, right? Which, like, I was as I was watching your panel, there's such a diverse group of people who are on the stage with you coming from all these different kinds of backgrounds. And we often don't think of fashion as intersecting so easily with science. But I think what you're doing really demonstrates how much in common these two sort of fields have. Well, it's not a new concept, right? The Renaissance, you had science and art really tied in together, right? And I do think that, and I've always said it, um, that it will take, uh, I, I view the scientific process and the creative process, while they may look very different, it's they're not in the sense that you do get your very clean data fact process that took you through the science experiments, but it's a mess to get there, <laughs> like any mm -hmm. other thing that it's thinking uh, to prove and search. So they're not two different brains. And I think that that's one of the things that um, I'm able to, to crack down in both places where I, I can explain to scientists, yeah, the, the audience can can understand it. If, if we speak it, if we explain it in a, in a way that, that um, it's digestible, 
And um, the really, really clever ones have that ability, right, to make very complex information be digested in uh, in a way that we can all understand. And so what I thank you for pointing out this, mm -hmm. because I really saw that the fusion, what the issue we had, it had a, um, a issue of communication. So I use the platform that I have of fashion, which is what I love to do and I do. Um, and to try to cross pollinate information, right? Because the scientist community or the fusion uh, a community will be very silo, like all communities are in that information. But if we try to cross pollinate, because the big challenge that fusion has, besides plasma physics being one of the most difficult physics, is that while it's not commercialized yet, we do not have those two decades that, let's say, wind power and solar had from the mm -hmm. moment that they would be able to be commercialized till the moment they were deployed. So in a way, we have to work in advance, right? With an yeah. advanced strategy, advanced, um, and I'm very happy to hear that that's happening in, in both uh, the US and in Europe. There is uh, starting to understand what are going to be the different bureaucratic needs that are going to need it to be de the deployment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, of course, not the first time that you've gone to COP. I mean, I'm no. curious why you feel like that's an important place for you to have a presence as, you know, a fashion designer. I, it's, it has, it has not to do with me being a fashion designer. It has more to do with me being um, a human <laughs> and, uh, and a mother and that I just can't exist i'm very happy creating right like i love what i do but i could be just drawing in a piece of paper and sketching and painting and that makes me equally happy right if i um if i am going to be trying to put a business out there now and a new business model for for business it has to be not only the product has to be better than anything that is out there there has to be another added value and the added value for me it has to have the social component and then there is my personal mission which is the same as in my business and so it's more i'm there because i'm going there uh, which you know it's 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 a duty and a responsibility especially because i'm such I believe that this good news um, need to be heard. When we did the show in Paris, this was still not the breakthrough from the Lawrence Institute that we heard it last December, a year from now, a year ago. And so it's starting to become much, much more aware in the general public. And I think that that's extremely needed for people to have, again, hope and be able to not be thinking with a mentality, okay, let's just have the last drink at the bar and you know, this nightmare that it's happening, which is going to and is affecting really in in dramatic and tragic world uh, ways, mostly the people between the tropics. And I've seen it with my own eyes when I went to the biggest drought at that time, that was 2017 in Turkana. And that was something that really moved me. And I put all the power of, of whatever I had, the business, my ability to really understand that the unfairness of what climate injustice is, right? The price that um, people uh, in the tropics play, uh, pay for the way we live in the North. And so 
um, knowing what I know, seeing what I've seen. I mean, you know, mothers um, taking eight hours to to take a bit of water from dry river beds or mothers I had to choose um, which child to to help survive to walk them to the clinic 10 kilometers um, and people from Tucana it's said to be the origin of humankind so they I come from a ranch in South America and we've all migrated in some way mm -hmm. or another but not them and now they've lost all their um, uh, livestock, which are mostly goats, which is, is their commodities and the, and the way they also feed themselves, but they have absolutely nothing. And the unfairness of this is just something you can't erase from your head and you can't live without pretending that doesn't exist. So I'll do whatever I have to do to, 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 to try with my ability and, um, and um, circumstances be able to be helpful. And so my kids can say one day, oh, she just didn't stand on the side, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like your, your upbringing, um, especially, you know, you grew up on a, on a ranch in Uruguay, that that really shaped your sense of what sustainability could mean and would mean, you know, for you as a creative person. Would you say that's true? So yeah, the the ranch for me both of those ways. By the way, this is my mother. I don't know if you can see her. Um, and uh, I'm the seventh generation. So when people talk about regenerative agriculture or um, it's what my mother and my family has been doing, pre-industrialization uh, practices. Um, and what the ranch for me, it's basically learning sustainability from a utilitarian point of view. When you are so remote, two hours and a half away from the closest city. I was just there um, in uh, just two weeks ago, and it's easier to go to Tokyo from New York than to go to where I come from. And um, it's 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 a trek, and it's really, really far away. And But it's the most beautiful place, and it informed me to, you can't just throw things. I, you know, we used to make our own soap. We used, everything gets reused in a ranch. It's ex the, the example of circularity. And then because I was born pre-globalization and my mother's still off the grid and there was no TV and definitely not, not iPhones. And uh, I had, my imagination was my only toy. And so there is where creativity also got, uh, Develop so I I am saying that that place formed me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, and the respect for nature because you you are not you don't have that sense that we are divided from nature mm -hmm. or that there is any superiority because you can see what nature can do. I mean, I've seen lightning destroy a house and can see floods. If it floods, you cannot get out. I mean, it's. I've been, you know, stuck in muds on the truck with my dad when I was a little kid is one of my like early memories and having people to come and going in the rain. I mean, I know the strength of uh, of nature and I have huge respect for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's such a fantastic memory. I, one of the other things, though, that that I recall, like when you first launched your brand, that you were really one of the first designers to say that luxury and sustainability could intersect, which was something that really, um, you know, now that's quite popular, this idea of buying less and buying better. 
Um, but I recall that you were one of the first designers to to really talk about that as as the focus of your brand. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you see luxury goods and sustainability intersecting? So that's for me it makes more sense that the term luxury comes with something that it's scarce, that it's built to 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 la last a la lifetime, right? And mm -hmm. again, going back to my upbringing, I don't remember my mother having a lot of clothes, right? She had a small wardrobe. Usually you have your gaucho gear and then the clothes that she had to be for, you know, urban settings or go to the rural expo, whatever it was, it was made by our seamstress. And that was the highest form of clothing you could do, right? Mm -hmm. Buy a nice fabric and have your clothing done. And you wouldn't buy clothes every month or, you, or every year even. You would have these moments that were important that you would invest in making clothes. So from the perspective of the tradition of garments, which is something I, you know, it's my medium of expression and I love so much. I am somebody that truly feels happy in the morning putting an outfit together that truly gives me like it just changes my mood and if i didn't do that i wouldn't do what i do but i've learned from a common sense about having few but very very good things that would last you a long time and for me it made sense that that's what luxury was i didn't want and this is exactly what i said it's like i didn't want i wanted people to buy one really good sweater instead of 10 mediocre or so that's why it's the commitment so important that we have to put the product that out there that is of the top best of qualities. This is why we don't have a marketing department at Gavrila Hearst. You're looking at it and uh, it's because we want to give you the best ingredients in the world done by the best hands and to be able to also do it with a social component where we work with a lot of co-ops that are non-for-profits around the world to help us create these, 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 these products. And so it really was about having the consciousness of what uh, being connected to others is and I can't justify doing what I do as I said before if it doesn't really bring a positive outcome but the better news of it all is that it's been a very good growing business that we've had control we've had been very lucky to have opportunities where the business could have skyrocketed because we had a hit back very early on which I refused to host so um, because it would take double the amount of natural resources for to make the same amount of money, but for what reason? Besides becoming very famous very quickly, and that's not part of the long-term view uh, pillars that are based on this company, which are two: long-term view and sustainability. That's what makes every single decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And so, it's really about that for me luxury should be scarce and should be well made and it shouldn't be um oversaturated and you know that's the difference between mass luxury i would say and on true true quality and craft which there there are very few out there com with that commitment mm -hmm. yeah i mean it, it's it, in a way it's a it's it's an unorthodox position, right? Because a lot of brands now are asking us to buy more things than ever before. They're making more products than ever before. Did you find it, you know, when you were at Chloe, did you find that a challenge to sort of foreground that? Or did you feel like they were receptive to your ideas? I mean, Chloe was a fantastic opportunity because it was really the opportunity to do in a joint effort, right? I don't want to give myself 
the only credit. It was a joint effort to of a company that really truly wanted to change, that was in a position that needed to change and transform. And I was uh, extremely curious if we could upload all that research and development and knowledge that we had had in Gabriela Hearst in a new in a in a business that was of a larger scale than what we are and no longer like it was 75 year old business uh 72 year old business versus an eight year old business and the answer was yes and to build it better um not to take uh the quote from our our president but it really is you could truly turn it around and i see it how it can happen in a in a business from an origin like ours or in a scale business that is already scaled that, that needed to have a change and show that growth and you build it better in a very uh, specific uh, way with obviously you need teams and people to understand. And what it was very clear to me early on was that you have to have all the parts thinking this is a priority, right? Has to be the CEO, the, uh, the creative director, the uh, head of, of production of development, it has to be a, a conversion on, on belief system, right? That it says this is the priority. Because you, when you make sustainability the priority, then the choices are very easy to, to, to take. Is this a more sustainable option or not? Yeah. I also remember um, at your finale show in September um, in Paris, you did this fantastic dance down the runway. Um, and I wondered, like, what was, you know, it felt like such a moment of celebration in a way. What were you feeling in that in that kind of moment? First, it was, I knew it was going to be my last show and it was the last chapter on, on, the, on the four volumes of Climate Success, which was about consciousness. And, and I'm saying this a lot because I think that if someone's not fighting for their survival and we need to have those numbers with us all the time where we're approximating getting to the number of 125 million refugees with all the conflicts in the world, half of them are children. And then I, um, I just learned this number from the anti-slavery collective. There's 50 million people living in, in slavery today. That's the country of Spain. And um, so if you're not fighting for your survivor and you're not in these circumstances, I think you have one job to do which is to be joyful, to joy that I think that's the most punk thing one can do. And I thought, first of all, I felt that we had to bring a samba school. I'm very, very proud of my South American and Latin roots, and, and I'm very proud of coming from the Americas. And, and, and this is, you know, the first Latin American woman to be um, a creative director in a Paris Maison, and that was something that I took really, really deeply because you you have to bring your continent and your people with you, and and um, and so we thought we have to bring a sample school, and the number one in the world is Mangueira, which for people in 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 Rio or in Brazil is like being part of a of a soccer club, right? Each samba school means that passions, and so we brought. Um, uh, members of the of the Escola do Samba of Mangueira, the the Rio Carnival is 200 years, and it's really uh, a form of celebration from a very uh, uh, 
sacrificed and and um, difficult life, right? It was created by by the the slaves in in Brazil, and so it's just that the moment of celebration from this this pain and had to bring that to Paris that. I was so shocked that nobody had done that in a fashion show before. Um, and um, we all made it happen. I was so grateful for the team at Chloe that really, you know, um, and uh, I wasn't expecting to dance. I didn't plan that. It was just the joy of really uh, loving those three years, learning so much and um, and love that collection. I truly, truly love that collection. I still salivate for every single piece that we put there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was a very joyful moment. Um, and so lastly, I, I, you know, you are one of the few female fashion designers with you have your own name on your own brand, you know, that is almost it's nearly a decade old. It's, you know, eight years old. So, you know, I think a lot of people this this fall were sort of asking themselves, you know, why are there not more female creative directors and female designers. And I'm curious as to whether you have any thoughts about why that might be. You know, I thought about it because it's, it's something that I don't think it is um, something that comes with, let's say, ill intent, like most things are not unless they're you know psychopathic based, but you know that there, there's some out there. But most of these things are are biases, I think. Are are if you live and it, this is obviously my opinion, but let's say that you are an executive of a certain age um, and grew up in a in a city and you grew up with certain type of marketing and and propaganda that. Um, told you what a woman is and a woman is not when you are in a in a business situation does it subconsciously bias make you feel more comfortable to have a masculine face across you or a female face and I'm not saying this is a conscious thing saying this is a um, a subconscious and I actually talked to a friend of mine that um, used to work in the in the finance industry and there was um, a, a big effort uh, because it's a, obviously a male-dominated um, industry, which was uh, a, there was an effort to try and, and change these biases and to really make uh, make sure that women ha were having uh, a fair shot. Um, and obviously, there's still more work to do, but I think there may have to be some of that thinking in fashion as well, because I'm not saying women were perfect but we're definitely better. <laughs> I love the way you're thinking about that. Um, yeah. I don't have the data behind us. Like, look at a, look at a, and that was part of another of the climate successes, things women need to be in position of power in every single power seat. And I studied the Druids because of that, because of the, of where they had women in society and the Druids were a caste during this in the Celt, um, which at the time, uh, as the Roman Empire was advancing in Europe, they occupied one third of all Europe. And you had two opposing cultures at the time, right? This is the story of imperialism. You had the Romans that believed that women were pleasure objects and to have children. And then you had the Druids that couldn't make a decision in society with having women included. If we will go to war, if we would save this, we would do that. They were the engineers, the thinkings, the oracles. So 
um, we're needed in society. And if you look at, for example, catastrophe um, footage, you will always see uh, men kind of trying to go and save their lives and women trying to lift as many as possible, you know, to put them on the plane and to try and, and, and help. And this is the nature of, of women. We really lift a community. And I see those numbers from Save the Children. If you empower women, you empower communities. I seeing it from Manos del Uruguay, the other co-op that we work with. Empower women, you empower communities. It's just uh, there's economical papers written on this of countries that that uh, are supportive of the women empowerment. They do much better economically. It's just the way we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you've given us so much to think about in this um, short conversation. So we unfortunately have to leave it there since we're out of time. Um, but thank you so much for joining me. This was really, really a lot of fun to chat with you on Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Yeah.